Welcome back to Tales of Southwest Michigan's Past. This is Michael Delaware. I am your tour guide through history. And in this episode, we're going to zero in on the city of Battle Creek and look at Battle Creek in wartime. Now, the information I'm going to share with you today comes from a book called Tales of Battle Creek, written by Bernice Bryant Lowe published in 1976. And it's fitting that it was published in that year because it was the anniversary of American independence. And in this book, she has a chapter called Battle Creek in Wartime. So that's what we're going to explore today. So come along and join me. In September of 1777, Thomas Paine wrote, Those who expect to reap the blessings of freedom must, like men, undergo the fatigues of supporting it. Bernice Bryant Lowe writes, When Battle Creek was a teenager, it hardly knew its own name when it was 15 years old. News came through slowly that our country was becoming involved in the war with Mexico. A Kalamazoo youth died of fever in the Veracruz Harbor. Theron Tracy, who later became a Battle Creek mayor, lived in Barry County then, and he called a meeting of his neighbors in that year of 1846 to have them pass a resolution either for or against national participation. Ten years after the Mexican War, the Republican Party was formed. Another five years and Lincoln became United States President on March 4, 1861. By April 15th, several states had withdrawn from the Union and attacked Fort Sumter successfully. Lincoln called up 75,000 militiamen from the states, vowing to preserve the Union. The northern states, including Michigan, sprang to the colors. Within the next four tragic years, Calhoun County gave its share of sons to service. Major Cornelius Byington's body arrived by train December 31, 1861. His funeral was held on one of the coldest days in the city's history, when one horse in the waiting procession froze to death. The Merrill Horse Company, a Michigan unit credited to Missouri, was the most glamorous recruited here and figured prominently in the GAR, that's the Grand Army of the Republic, history after the war. And just to sidestep here from her article, I completed a lot of research on Cornelius Byington because I became very interested in his story. He died in Knoxville during the Civil War, and he was a major at the time of his death. And he um, came from Battle Creek. He was a city clerk, and his diary is a fascinating read. There's not a tremendous amount of entries, but it tells the story of his travels around the United States during the Civil War. He spent some time down in Louisiana, Mississippi, Virginia, and Kentucky and Knoxville and so forth during the war. And an interesting discovery I found out about him was that he had a brother that was on the Confederate side of the war. And they came within about a week or two of meeting each other in battle, which is an interesting story all by itself. So let me return to Miss Lowe's article. Early in the war, black citizens were not allowed to enlist. Sojourner Truth's grandson, James Caldwell, joined the 1st Colored Regiment, the Massachusetts 54th Infantry. Later, Michigan had its own colored regiment. The first group of soldiers to leave the city was given great fanfare. 
women of the Congregational Presbyterian Church tendered the men a banquet. They were accompanied to the railroad station by a great singing parade of townsfolk. And when I researched the Cornelius Byington story, he was within that group of the first recruits. They went within the first two weeks of the war being announced, and Cornelius's sister uh, gave each of the men their own copy of the Bible and asked them all to abstain from drinking alcohol in their journey. And just an interesting little side note about that. Miss Lowe continues, the Civil War wasn't all glamour. There were hardships galore. Local newspapers were not saved. They had too many uses, including the wadding for guns. Anyone finding even one Battle Creek newspaper of the 1860s is urged to share it with the Willard Library for the sake of future historians. And that is absolutely true. If you go rummaging through an old home in Battle Creek and you come across a bunch of old newspapers, if you see anything from the 1860s, preserve it and set it aside. Don't let it go into the dumpster. Get it down to the Willard Library because those newspapers are invaluable. They are absolutely a lost chapter in our city's history. And I think everybody who would come with future generations and want to do any historical research would really love to be able to read those years of the Civil War and what the viewpoint of what was happening in the city during that time. And it's just lost information. Uh, There are a few other gaps in the Willard Library archives, largely due to newspapers not being scanned digitally, but they are available on microfilm. The 1860s, those are lost. And uh, that is something to really look out for should you ever be out in this area and remodeling homes or buying an old home and discovering uh, a box of newspapers somewhere in the attic or within the walls when you tear down something for renovation. Keep that in mind and spread the word about that to your friends and neighbors out there. The 1860s, those are lost newspapers within our city's history. And when you take them down to the Willard Library, you don't have to turn them over forever. You, You can just have them scan them and they could be made available for public use. So the Spanish-American War means Company D to Battle Creek. Enlistees were young men, chiefly from families with distinction. They, too, went to war with singing and fanfare. They were sent to a tent camp at Diamond Lake near Cassopolis, where boredom set in, and then on to Florida in a field of scrub palmettos where super boredom and fever haunted them until they were discharged. They were glad enough not to see battle action and get home again alive. The decision of the United States government in 1917 to use the area six miles west of Battle Creek for Camp Custer changed the development of the city and the lives of its people. Hurry was the watchword after the entrance into World War I in April. All hands available were called in to clear the land, build railroad spurs, roads, and barracks. Bring your saw and hammer and get a job, ran the ads. In addition to enlistees, there were many heroes among volunteers through work in the Red Cross, churches, and other war efforts. There was no streetcar line to Camp Custer, no bus or taxi service. 
Only a few women in town knew how to drive and also had a car available. They formed the Red Cross Motor Corps, a dedicated group. Louise Hoffmaster and Helen Hoyle had the night assignment. They worked from 9 p.m. till dawn, if necessary. During the influenza epidemic, they carried medicines, masks, bandages, pillows, and any hospital equipment that had been assembled by other volunteers. Day drivers, who often met relatives of sick soldiers at incoming trains, were on call at night as well to make a quick trip to Camp Custer. War was bad enough, but the invasion of the flu epidemic in the fall of 1918 was horrific. Just as victory in Europe seemed imminent, influenza and its complication, pneumonia caused the deaths of thousands throughout America among civilians and especially among soldiers in training in the crowded camps. Hospitals were completely inadequate. Among civilians, whole families were flattened. Doctors made house calls 20 hours a day. At Camp Custer, care for the dead was as difficult as care for the ill. And all the time, officers were trying to prepare men for action in Europe. Freight cars were sent by the Spur Railroad to be loaded with wooden boxes, each with a body on its final journey home. Battle Creek was the transfer center. Baggage and freight rooms could not contain all the shipments. Old-timers remember seeing the boxes piled three high, three wide, and 20 end-to-end behind the Michigan Central Tracks awaiting pickup. That is a macabre image, if you ask me, seeing that many coffins stacked up along the railroad tracks. On November 11th, 1918, the war was over. The epidemic was abating. The impromptu parade of rejoicing duplicated in towns and cities across the country was a strange mixture of joy, relief, mourning, and gratitude. World War II began in Europe in September 1939. Throughout 1940, there were American preparations going on, quite obviously for involvement. Freight trains became longer and more numerous, halting traffic as they cut through our city, as they had done for nearly a hundred years. Camp Custer began receiving enlargement and refurbishing. Its name was changed to Fort Custer. By January 1941, the 5th Red Diamond Division was being formed and was established at Fort Custer. The men had been drafted for one year of service, and by November, they were rejoicing that at the end of the next month, their stint would be over and they could go home. The attack on Pearl Harbor came December 7, 1941. The 5th Division was sent to Iceland without leave. There it stayed until it was sent to join Patton's 3rd Army in late 1944. There were very few Battle Creek men in the unit, but many others had made friends here, and the bad luck of the 5th Division was felt keenly. The trainees who followed could not stay at Fort Custer as long, for they were quickly prepared for combat. Gogwek Prairie proved useful again. Kellogg Airfield was enlarged for Army Air Corps use. This was the transition base where the big bombers, B-17s and the new B-25s and new crews were brought together for final preparation and training for overseas duty. Wayne Fredericks, captain of a B-17 and Kellogg Company employee, before joining the Army Air Forces, named his ship Snap, Crackle, and Pop. And that's a story that I've included on this podcast uh, earlier this year. He and his crew spent several days in Battle Creek while their plane was checked out 
before flying the Atlantic for combat. And they were ultimately shot down not long after they had been in service over there. I want to say it was within the first month or two that they were flying missions over Europe. The Kellogg Foundation loaned its camp and lake properties to the United States Coast Guard for training centers. A German prisoner of war camp was established at Fort Custer, and the cemetery for prisoners who died there is well kept. And that still exists today at Fort Custer National Cemetery. The women did their bit. Again, the city sprang into usefulness. Whenever people gathered, women were knitting olive drab yarn. The Red Cross volunteers were legion, folding bandages, doling out ration tickets, entertaining relatives of soldiers, driving their own and government cars in the motor corps. Women gave thousands of hours to that motor corps activity. They were required to learn how to drive Jeep, ambulance, and a duck, a D-U-K-W, was a two and a half ton truck that could swim. The story is told of a lieutenant who had been entertained at dinner at the Gold Lake Country Club. He was in charge of a duck, the land and sea rover, and took a few of his guests on Gull Lake to demonstrate it. When he seemed a little bit unsure of himself, his imbibing at the party having caught up with him, a pretty young woman, trained for the motor course, took the wheel, finished the demonstration with daring and expertise, and moored the amphibious vehicle with flair on the country club lawn. How did I do, Lieutenant, she asked. The experience must have cleared his addled brain, for he answered crisply, You scared the hell out of me. Three centuries ago, in commenting on those who cannot participate in war's combat, Milton wrote, They also serve who only stand and wait. In World Wars I and II, Battle Creek women waited for an end to the fighting, but they certainly didn't stand around. A group of energetic young women in the Service League, affiliated in 1948 with the National Junior League, established three centers that were kept open seven days a week. The townhouse on North Washington Street for ambulatory or wheelchair paraplegics from Percy Jones Hospital, a similar townhouse at Fort Custer, and the greenhouse at the airport. Air Force trainees from Selfridge Field and other nearby airfields were up before dawn practicing takeoffs and touchdowns. Often, they were too tired to eat breakfast before starting their day and had no opportunity to get food again until their practice sessions were completed. The local women assigned to this detail were on duty at 5 a.m. with coffee and donuts. By 9 a.m., they had made sandwiches of minced bologna. Meat was rationed and hard to find. Chopped pickle and mayonnaise. Homebound volunteers supplied cakes. This luxury fare, available free, soon had a magnet reputation so that training flights were happily scheduled via Kellogg Airfield. The crews of locally-based B-25s took advantage of greenhouse generosity as well. Through such efforts, Battle Creek's wartime hospitality has been warmly remembered. There were USO centers for men where other volunteers duplicated the service league's dedication. Lounges were established by the women of churches and other organizations. How those mothers, sisters, sweethearts managed in spite of rationing to offer homemade treats for the homesick men is now a mystery. Battle Creek Sanitarium's main building was purchased by the government and became the Army's Percy Jones General Hospital. A few of its patients were eye-damaged, but the prime specialty was orthopedic surgery and rehabilitation for amputees. It was the Red Cross that solicited and organized volunteers. Hundreds of gray ladies contributed thousands of hours 
to comfort and entertainment of wounded soldiers. Running errands, finding and distributing books and magazines, writing letters, pushing wheelchairs, dancing with the guys, getting accustomed to artificial legs and arms, building and doling out confidence. There weren't enough occupational therapists to go around, so volunteers established workshops. Betty Boos, Phoebe Epps, Marjorie French, Janet Hatch, and others taught bedside arts and crafts, painting, sewing, knitting, jewelry making. Men taught fly tying, a popular craft among the convalescents. Groups from Ann Arbor, Grand Rapids, Kalamazoo, and Marshall took turns helping with this occupational therapy. In the spring of 1946, six months after the end of the war, there were 6,500 patients at Percy Jones Hospital. Lola Jane, wife of Dan Jane, manager of WELL, and Isla Schaefer, wife of Congressman Paul Schaefer, solicited nationally known fabulous entertainers who came willingly to brighten ward after ward of near-hopeless amputees. The stalwart women who assumed men's jobs in the factories were not to be forgotten. Eaton's valve division is a good example. Government contracts required immediate expansion. If enough capable machinists could be found or trained, it was decided to use 2,000 women. Ruth Kelsey, director of the Sanitarium's Extension Department, was asked to take charge of the program. Her new task was to be innovative. First, she observed in another Eaton plant where women had already begun working at machines. She planned the local program. A counselor supervisor was hired for each 200 women. There were, previous to the influx, only two women on duty at the plant. It was supposed that women could learn to operate only a few of the hundreds of machines. They took the jobs with the dedicated purpose of making valves for military needs and thereby to bring the war to an end and their loved ones home again. Their rate of production was above peacetime averages. Women conquered every machine in the factory except for the heavy forging presses used to form heated steel in the hammer shop. They stood by their machines as their fingers acquired new skills, agility, and accuracy. The blind Milton would have been proud of them. And that is Bernice Bryant Lowe's summary of Battle Creek in wartime. And she, of course, covers uh, many decades there of the different wars that touched the city's history. And she gives some anecdotes of different time periods and different aspects. But it is a beautiful synopsis of Battle Creek and wartime and gives a little bit of an insight into Fort Custer history as well as what women were doing during wartime. And a lot of that is somewhat lost history, unless you can get with some of those women that may still be alive today and interview them or read the letters that they had in their possession. A lot of the World War I history is starting to fade away, and those are important things to try to preserve when it comes to local history. And I certainly want to do more stories on some of the different aspects of the history of Fort Custer and before when it was Camp Custer to bring to this podcast and tell those little stories. And I've done a few episodes on that over the past two years, one around Thanksgiving time. It told what was going on during the 1918 Thanksgiving in Fort Custer and what was going on in the city of Battle Creek. And it's kind of an interesting detail that came out of some of the stories that I researched about that period of time. But I'll do some more research in the future and try to bring some more insight into it. But Bernice Bryant Lowe was quite a historian 
and her book Tales of Battle Creek is a wonderful read and it is a lot of highlights of different aspects of Battle Creek's history and each one of those can be a starting point for a novel in itself. I mean you could probably research much more on just the subject of women in wartime in Battle Creek and come up with an entire book about it because there was so much between Percy Jones Hospital, their efforts at the Red Cross and the USO and their work that they did at Fort Custer as well as Camp Custer. I mean, there's just so much history there. Um, It is a fascinating chapter in the history of Battle Creek and there is sort of a unique historical look at the city of Battle Creek because of the existence of the major military fort that was established here during the war and there's so many different layers. I've also done stories about the German POW camp and how that was organized and how there were branch camps all over the state They were all run from Fort Custer, and some of the stories related to that, I've done a little bit of work on bringing that to my podcast as well as my YouTube channel. But she is absolutely correct in her statement that when they established Camp Custer, which later became Fort Custer during World War II, it forever changed the dynamic of the city of Battle Creek and the future of the city. But that's going to conclude today's journey through history. If you enjoyed today's episode, please be sure to hit the rating button on whatever app that you are listening on and subscribe to the podcast and, of course, share the podcast with others. And if you'd like to reach out to me, you could find me at michaeldelaware.com. I'm always happy to hear from my listeners. And just as a side note, the... Kellogg Airfield is coming up on its 100th anniversary next year and there is a big celebration planned that's going to go on for several months throughout the city with different events and I've been working with that organizing committee to bring a few events at the Battle Creek Regional History Museum and assist them with some of their other projects to make that a fascinating experience for everybody but uh, they're putting together a book that I'll probably be involved with writing an article or two for on some of the uh, history of the airfield and the aviation history in Battle Creek, Michigan. So that should be a fun project that will evolve over the next several months. And I'll try to have some people on this podcast as guests that are working on that. But until next time, when we take another journey into yesterday and we explore even more fascinating tales of Southwest Michigan's past... Thank you for listening.